Hey, Dad, what do you do when you're out with friends? The waiter comes up and tries to take everybody's order, but the whole table freezes up, and everyone's looking at each other trying to find some help. Mm, that's a great question. So what, what should I do? You should have some confidence, Dad, or as our friends at Jägermeister call it, shotfidence. If everyone's having trouble ordering, here's what you do. You take charge, you grab the bull by the horns, you find that dog in you, and you make an executive decision. And just order for the table a round of ice-cold Jägermeister shots. Damn, that's cold. Because apparently, we've all been drinking Jägermeister wrong. Did not know that. How should we be drinking it? Glad you asked, Dad. We should be drinking it ice cold at zero degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that brings up other things that I love ice cold as well. And I'll tell you right out of the gate, that's going to be a candy bar pulled out of the freezer. That's my way of eating candy. Oh, I love it. On the golf course out there, you get to the turn in the middle of the round there, and you get to that little clubhouse there, and they've always got the candy bar options, and I always see they've usually got a little box of them in the freezer, and it always makes it better on a hot day out on the golf course, taking a bite of that cold, cold chocolate and getting ready to go for the rest of my round. It's the same way with Jägermeister. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice-cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister US, White Plains, New York. Lots of things go better together. Hockey, food, golf, peanut butter and jelly, Gojo and Golik, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. What? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. Good morning. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. That is me. With me, as always, Triple B Fresh, Brandon Newman. Brandon, what's going on? Big baller brand, big baller lifestyle, you know. LeVar is quiet now, which is unusual and has been for a while, <laughs> which still indicates to me that LeBron got to that man eventually. Ooh, ooh, yes. Uh, but let's, let's not talk about We have serious things to talk about today. Uh, we do have a lot to talk about today, which I say all the time and still remains true, which is why you should always download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a review and check us out on the DraftKings YouTube channel under the Gojo with Mike Golick Jr. tab because there's a lot of stuff. I know everyone's got different time in their week, busy schedules, so if you need to go back and check something out, like any of our interviews this week with Joy Taylor, Roddy Jones, Christian Winfield, all great stuff you can go check out. We got Alex Forsyth, who's the center for the Oregon Ducks, one of the top-ranked college football teams. I'm going to be on the call for their game against Stanford this weekend, a little Pac-12 after dark. So, fun to get to talk to a little bit of beef on the podcast here. He's the second offensive lineman we've had on the podcast. Current player, Chance Lytle from Duke, the other one, the singing Duke offensive lineman from preseason. Uh, for Alex and the Oregon Ducks, they have not given up a sack this entire season so far through four games. Ooh. So, pretty impressive. And I'm not, it's not the announcer jinx. It is in their media guide. They talk openly about it. So, I'm not jinxing anybody Mike. here. If you want to talk about announcer jinx, that's the perfect segue to talk about this Thursday night football game that happened last night. Yeah, it, it probably is, and it's it's certainly going to be the topic at the start of every show and every conversation going on in North America today because we had Thursday night football last night. You and I talked a lot about that heading into uh, yesterday, and 
The Cincinnati Bengals win 27-15, which on the surface, I don't think would have been that surprising given what we talked about, the parameters coming into this game, the quick turnaround, how exhausted everyone looked after last week. But this is a really hard football game to pay attention to or care about after what we saw happen in the second quarter of this game. Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tonga-Vailoa was taken to a local hospital with head and neck injuries, suffered in the second quarter uh, after a sack in Thursday night's football game. Uh, Bengals nose tackle Josh Tupo uh, threw, Bur- or threw Tua to the ground. It was a pretty tough-looking sack. It was one where he spun him around and ended up whipping to the ground. I don't, just as a sidebar, I don't really fault the tackler on this. These are things that happen Really split second in the middle of plays, especially along the interior. It wasn't like a suplex that we've seen. It was, you know, football is a violent game, as will be the discussion around this injury to Tua Tunga-Vailoa. But I I don't want to – I name him because it's the information of the play. I don't name him out of shame or guilt into that man's role in this play. But he was – you know, it was a grisly scene and one that I think the Amazon broadcast showed way too much, quite frankly, of Tua with the fencing posture or position that we often see for players who are suffering from concussion-like symptoms. Uh, his arms seized up almost immediately. He was on the field and loaded onto a stretcher and taken away there before he was taken to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center to be examined during the game. He was released from the hospital Thursday night and cleared to travel back with Miami uh, after the game, which, you know, uh, again, this is going to be a podcast and I think a lot of media full of everyone admitting the things that they don't know about concussion protocol and the things that we do know about concussion protocol in the NFL. But I would like a lot of people had the instant reaction of should he be going up at altitude after something like this? And Mm. the reason we're allowed to ask those questions is because the people surrounding the decision-making for the Miami Dolphins are going to be under a ton of pressure and a ton of scrutiny because it's impossible to see what happened here and not think of what happened Sunday against the Bills, where Tua underwent concussion evaluations at halftime after hitting his head on the ground, stumbling, trying to return to the huddle. The team, remember, in that situation, initially listed him as questionable to return with a head injury, and then later said that it was a back injury that caused him to stumble and allowed him to return to the game, a game that they won. And a lot was made of that. The NFLPA came out and said they wanted an investigation into that process to find out if the Miami Dolphins had followed that all along the way. And and that's how we get to last night, Brandon, because it was a, even for people who have been around football a lot the way we have, guys like Richard Sherman and Ryan Fitzpatrick who were on the Amazon Prime half, you could tell everyone was shook. And this is a sport that sees violent collisions, horrific injuries, and the most damning part of it all, the snap, the whistle that happens after the next play gets started and everything keeps moving along, which once again happened in this game. And man, it's like the cold dose of reality that we always talk about with football. But Brandon, for a league that has always had such a tainted relationship with player safety, especially along the lines of the concussions, the lawsuit filed on behalf of players after years of proof that the NFL was hiding information on concussions from players in the NFL and the light that that is always cast, or I should say the shadow that's always cast on the league. This is once again opening the Dolphins, the NFL, and the, listen, the NFLPA that is a part of this all up to scrutiny surrounding why this player was back on the field at all 
what the diagnosis and the process that led to that was at the beginning was and how that all culminates into tonight, which was a, and this is not to say it would have been lesser had it have been on a Sunday window, but this was a primetime game that everybody got to saw. There was no running from this. And we Mm -hmm. hear people talk about this all the time. Everyone had to reckon with the violence of the sport and the severity of the decision to allow Tua to return back out onto the field. And I know I'm rambling right here, and and it's probably not even helpful. We're We're recording this right after the game, and it's a lot to process, Brandon, because part of me is certainly upset. It seems like the people involved in this failed Tua. We talked to a friend of ours and have talked to players who have suffered from concussions because one thing you heard Ryan Fitzpatrick say in the post-game broadcast was, I got to sit with Tua before this game in an interview. I got to sit with him and just chat off camera for a little while after, and he seemed fine. There are plenty of players that seem fine while still having suffered a concussion. Plenty of players who go out and play fine while having suffered a concussion. Plenty of players who do all that and then go out and play the next week while having a concussion. And this has gone on for years, we know, in a sport where, for a long time, players played a role in that. It is a hyper-competitive sport and a hyper-competitive league full of people whose chief goal is to go out there and win because it puts food on their tables. And so that's always what's at odds in this, right? Is this claim. And the NFLPA puts out their statement at halftime saying... Yada yada about player safety is our number one goal and all these things, but it's always at odds with the fact that the goal for everyone in the building is to win first and foremost at all costs. And we've seen player attitudes towards this change. We've seen what we thought were attempts by the NFL to make sure that this didn't happen. We always heard literally and figuratively, take the helmet out of the player's hand. Take the decision away from the hyper-competitive people within this arena who are wired to play through everything. And maybe some of that wiring is becoming undone, Brandon, but it's still a process that was attempted to put in place to have the neurological spotters around the stadium, those people who are separate from just the team uh, personnel there as spotters, because the whole goal was to take this decision process away from the players themselves and put it on people that are supposed to be operating in their best interests and trying to be an unbiased third party in the way that they view this. And this just, it's hard to look at this and not see a failure of whatever that process was supposed to be. Yeah, Mike, I, I understand the process of uh, taking the decisions away from the highly competitive players, but. I think in this day and age, everyone in that franchise is highly competitive and all the coaches are highly competitive and the training staff seems to be highly competitive. It seems like it's no one's job to make the right decision for the player off the field, right? Because this is what we're talking about now. And that's what I don't like about this, what's happening with the, the hype around the Dolphins. I think everyone's feeding into it. This the three and O Dolphins and this this possible uh, Super Bowl contending team, and we're not thinking about all the things that happened with that franchise in the front office that was kind of hairy that led us to this point. And I, I think it's it's showing itself now in how they're taking care of the players on the field and their starting quarterback in Tua. So 
I think that was a conclusion I saw a lot of people go to was this is a franchise that has not shown itself trustworthy as of late overall. And so does that bleed into the way that we think about this process? And to your point about whose job it is to look out for Tua, I just a brief outline of what the concussion process is supposed to look like when it happens in the game. If the player receives impact to the head and the player exhibits or reports symptoms that suggest a concussion, you know, the the booth, the athletic training staff, the team physician, an NFL physician, or the uh, the UNC on the sideline here, the uh, neurological uh, person who's supposed to be the spotter around the stadium, essentially. Um, is supposed to have them go to the sideline, remove their helmet, and take them through a history of their event, concussion signs and symptoms, Maddox questions, which there are different questions, you know, historically that people have used as trying like a test of memory on the sideline for players, and then a forced neurological exam. So they take a look at the cervical spine, they evaluate speech, observation of gait, eye movements, and if there are still elements of a concussion, then they take them into the locker room. So Tua went into the locker room at halftime with Miami, and in the locker room, you're supposed to have a team physician or the spotter perform an NFL SCAD exam, which is the baseline concussion test, to the best of my knowledge, that you're supposed to go through that shows, hey, this is your baseline cognitive response when prompted with these questions compared to what happens when you're in the concussion protocol and then completing a neurological exam. And if at any time you display loss of control, gross motor instability, confusion, amnesia, or if the player starts to demonstrate worse uh, worse, uh, symptoms, they're supposed to take your helmet and you're supposed to be a no-go. And there are certain things that we saw with Tua last Sunday that to so many people, the wobbling when he was walking off the field, looked like a no-go in a lot of people's minds. And so all of that is the backdrop, Brandon, also leads me to this. The the other part of this involved, because the NFLPA statement is noteworthy, the NFLPA is supposed to be the governing body that's looking out for the best interest of players. And I don't know the ins and outs of this process. Dominique Foxworth is someone whose opinion I will look for in the coming hours and days on this because he was someone that held the job high up in the NFLPA and was a part of these processes. When the NFLPA says that they are going to, they want an investigation into the NFL's process, from what I heard after the broadcast, and Michael Smith, who's been on this show, does a great job on that Thursday Night Football broadcast, laid out a really coherent timeline of where they were at, made it sound like that the NFLPA was still in the information gathering phase and hadn't started conducting interviews in this process. And it was a process that they said up front could take a week or two. I'm unsure, especially when it comes to head injuries. In this league, how that's not a process that can somehow be expedited when it is the health and safety of that player who may be then cleared to see the field. Every indication was given to us during the week that Tua, while listed as questionable for a lot of the week, was going to see the field. And how you can leave this in doubt to where if the findings of that investigation were yeah, this process wasn't followed along the way and this guy may have had a concussion, then you've let him back out for a subsequent week or maybe more onto the field to do further damage. And that's the part that I need someone to answer for me. I don't. I try not to ask that question 
in too accusatory of a way when I don't know, but I'm genuinely curious how that can be a part of the process when what's at the core, the subject of this, is someone's head. And the most severe injury that we talk about and the one the league claims to be most sensitive to in this day and age, how that investigation can be allowed to span that long and how everyone involved, the NFLPA, the Miami Dolphins, and the league, with all their resources together, can't come and say, let's get everything we need for this right now and really try and go through this with all the relevant parties because if the case is that you didn't follow protocol, there needs to be one, severe punishment for the Dolphins, and then two, this guy cannot be allowed to see the field in the next game because we've seen time and time again, teams and players, when the wins are on the line, like you framed it, when the season's going as well as it is for the Miami Dolphins, cannot be trusted with their own best interest in mind at certain times. And that's been the reality of the way that this process has been put together. Yeah, it seems like we've all had blinders up a little bit. Like the even the connection to the fact that that injury that we saw him take a sustain against the Buffalo Bills was so severe that it was his back that affected his neck and head or vice versa, his head and neck that affected his back. Well, we, and that's and that's the part I will say. We don't know how they decided to draw a connection okay. or not. There is my point because the Miami Dolphins, who maintain, and the NFL, who maintain, they believe the process was followed to the letter of the law under the NFL's current rules. They had come out and stated they believe this went about the right way, and everyone involved, to include it, has said, "No, it was my back. That was the reason I was walking the way I was." That was the reason I was locked up the way I was. So they're saying there is no connection between the two. It is either the Dolphins were wrong and didn't follow the process or, you know, some other version of the events. But they're not saying there was any connection between the two, even though it was initially listed as a head-slash-neck injury when it happened on Sunday in that Buffalo game. Well, just talking about where the Dolphins are wrong, because – we're responding to what the news says, and the news is Twitter, right? And everyone on there's a lot of people on Twitter, a certain camp that are calling for everyone's job. It's something that obviously NFL Twitter does often, regardless of whatever the thing that people are upset about. But I'm asking you, Mike, do you think anyone is in danger of losing their job? Yeah, uh, Brandon, I would say if the, and I will be curious to see now if this investigation is expedited further and if we start to get answers from this further now, which would be an indictment of the process yet again. But if it does happen and it is found that Miami did not follow this process and that there was a crack in what they perceived and what they presented, then yeah, there's going to be a lot of people whose jobs are at risk. Certainly the athletic training staff who ultimately has the final say on this is going to be at risk. But then everyone involved, and I think for... You know, people further up, they'd probably be able to fall back on chain of command and pointing to the athletic training staff. But yes, there would be a lot of people who would have to answer some very tough questions about how and why they should be allowed to have a future in that organization. When you put any player, let alone forget the you know the franchise quarterback or anything like that, if you put any player's health and safety and future in jeopardy the way it would have been put in jeopardy were that process not followed and he were concussed and allowed to return and play a game four days later. And there are plenty of people 
people would say just based off what we saw alone in that game, why would you not exercise extreme caution if you're the team? And the easy answer is the winning machine. You always hear me say it. The winning machines do the things that go and produce winning results. That tends to be the baseline for how people operate here. And there have been signs along the way that maybe there's been incremental progress in changing that. But at the core of it, it's still the winning machines. And we can look at Mike McDaniel and give him the benefit of the doubt and say, young, more progressive coach who we think might truly... And I don't want to doubt that there are people that truly have to his best interest in mind. Good individuals exist within the winning machine, but ultimately the pressure you described is what forces all of that down and ends up putting people back out on the field in compromised positions. I mean, I think this is obviously this is a, a, a turning point for a lot of people, a turning point for the league, a turning, a turning point for Tua. I mean, when you think about it, not only with his status as a player, but his relationship with the Miami Dolphins, Mike, because I think of, I, I saw this happen. And I thought about Tyrod Taylor, who got his lungs punctured by the team doctor from the Chargers. Now, obviously, Joy came on here and jo- jokingly said they're they're cursed, but that's how Justin Herbert first saw the field as a starter is because there was a medical malpractice lawsuit placed against the team doctor by Tyrod Taylor for injuring him. Does Tua have grounds to put a lawsuit out? Uh, that stuff's getting way too far ahead of where we're at, I, I think. Um, okay. But like every, everything's going to be on the table from here on out, and I think we're going to learn a lot, a lot sooner. Um, but, excuse me, I think we're going to learn a lot, a lot sooner than we were tracking to with this as it comes to the investigation, because now the heat was already on you, but for some reason, and, and listen, I... Me and everyone else are complicit in this process who talked about this as just a normal short week leading up to Thursday night football and didn't ask more pressing questions about this. And I, I'll just say me because I know I didn't ask enough questions about it here on this podcast. I won't hold anyone else to that. Everyone will have to answer that question for themselves. But there's always that culpability for everyone involved for not pushing more and asking what the hell is up with what we just saw in that game. And so... As this goes forward now, there's no avoiding that. They're in the fire now. The NFL, Miami, and once again, it leads back to this league and so many of the decisions that get made within it give you very little reason and very little desire to trust the NFL when it says things like player health and safety are a focus for us and to trust the NFL in the way that they approach these things. And so... You know, because it was so high profile, because he is a quarterback, because it is a prime time game, there is now a bigger chance of something changing. But is that something changing going to do the good necessary when so many of the things about the sport and about the way it's structured and the inside remain the same? That's, you know, without rambling on too much about it, that's going to be at the core of this is how much can you change, you know, if organizations, if they're found to not have followed the protocol here, if that's still something that we've got to worry about in 2022. That's information I hope we get soon and one way or another find out with absolute clarity. I hope the maximum amount of resources and attention are devoted to this because that's what it deserved before and that's what it deserves now. And I will be very interested to see the NFLPA's continued response after, again, that investigation somehow was not expedited. Maybe it could not be expedited. 
I will wait to hear the specifics from people involved who know better about what goes on inside that entity. But everyone is open to questions right now, including that group. So, whew, it, it, it's... It's tough, man. It was a tough football game to watch and care about after that fact. Like, I wrote down a bunch of notes about this game. The Bengals end up still getting a win in this game. Joe Burrow in the passing. There's a bunch of things that we could say about that. But it was a Dolphins team that was already beat up playing on a short week after being on the field and the defense for like 90-plus snaps in that game who lost their quarterback in one of the gnarliest and most jarring fashions we've seen in quite some time. I I was trying to be excited for Teddy Bridgewater in this moment. He came out and played well and uh but I couldn't I couldn't get over it, Mike, to the point where in the fourth quarter, once the Bengals solidified the game with the interception from Teddy Bridgewater, I'm talking about playing well. Joe Burrow is hyping up is talking to off all the offensive linemen, uh, you know, giving them dap and he says like Hell yeah! And like gives like a real big, like fist pump, and I, and I'm reminded that he's in Cincinnati. It's a whiteout game, whatever. They're not having a great season, and this is a big win for them. But it felt a little classless from Joe Burrow. But that's because I'm watching the game broadcast. Right. Yeah, that's because we're watching as outsiders, and we forget the same mentality that leads you to be able to play at all. To not be paralyzed out there on the field with fear after something like that is that myopic mentality of, hey, for self-preservation, for everything, I go back out there. And once you get back in between the lines, it does something different. You you know, it's that old military saying, you don't rise to the, uh, the occasion, you fall to the level of your training. Your training, once you mm. go inside the white lines, is you go full speed because if you don't, you'll get hurt. And that's what everyone defaults to once they get back out there. You've so firmly ingrained all the things about next man up, and when you see someone go down, you're worried for that teammate, and then the whistle blows, and it's almost like a response that resets you, and you go back out there and play. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's just my experience with it. I've been on the field when guys have been badly injured. I've seen friends of mine go down with catastrophic injuries that put them out for the season, and you just keep going because that's all you know how to do. So that's the reality of that situation. One more thing, and it's just because I saw Nora Princiati, who's been on this podcast, who does a great job covering the NFL over at The Ringer, um, commented on uh, Mike McDaniel, who was asked if he can express with 100% certainty that Tua Tungavailoa did not suffer a concussion or other head injury Sunday against Buffalo, said yes. And as Nora pointed out, this is not a thing that's possible to be certain about not without follow-up evaluations, which wouldn't have been required since Tua was cleared of a head injury on Sunday. And as we talk about things Mm. that could potentially change going forward, she posits a small thing the NFL could and should do is require any player who is flagged as needing an evaluation to get follow-ups even if they're cleared, pointing out that protocol can be followed and still not account for symptoms that don't develop within minutes, which many don't. So... I think the next 24 hours will involve more coherent analysis like that from people who can look at this, can see the process in the areas where it is falling short, and if the process was ignored at all here, or if this is like what Nora described, a gap in the way that we've been doing things before that needs to be very quickly erased. So that will be the process there. Um, you know, we're going to take a quick break here, kind of do a 
hard reset for everyone here. When we come back, Alex Forsyth, who's a great center for Oregon, a sixth-year college football player, and was a really enjoyable guy to talk to with his perspective and his approach to this season for Oregon, his career, and, and all the things going on there, is going to join the show ahead of the game that I'm calling with them this weekend. We'll take a break. We'll do that interview with Alex. And when we come back, we'll talk about the rest of what we've got coming up in the NFL weekend this Sunday. All right, guys, let's talk about Jägermeister. They could have written a totally normal ad here, like a really classic ad. They could have talked about their history, the 56 botanicals. It could have been all salesy and cutesy, but they know you don't care. Jägermeister doesn't want to be like all those other ads you've seen and heard. They just wanted to say two things. Jägermeister is great, but everyone has been drinking it wrong. Damn, that's cold. Drinking it wrong? All right, if that's the case, how should we be drinking it? They are so glad you asked, and so am I, Dad. I'm here to help you. Ice cold is the answer, at zero degrees Fahrenheit to be exact. Ice cold shots of Jägermeister. That's it. That's all they want to tell you. So wherever you are, if you're hanging out with friends or at the bar, call the shots. Cheers with ice cold shots of Jägermeister. Damn, that's cold. And remember to check out Jägermeister at www.draftkingsxjägermeister.com. Remember, drink responsibly. Jägermeister liqueur, 35% alcohol by volume. Imported by Mast Jägermeister U.S., White Plains, New York. What's up, Mike? How you doing? Good. How you doing, Alex? Good. Good. Appreciate you taking the time, man. No yeah, week gets busy, so... Yes. Yeah, is this pre or post practice for you guys? You guys morning group? Uh yeah, yeah, we're morning. So we just just got out of cold tubs a few minutes ago. There we go. Nice. Feeling <laughs> good. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, uh how's everything been so far? You're now officially, you know, one of the old guys on the team. Yeah. So how's that been treating you to start the season? I know it's an adjustment. Yeah, no, it's been good. Um, you know, especially after uh, you know, we had a good group in twenty nineteen when we went to the Rose Bowl. So we had a we had a good group of O linemen then. Um, and they really kind of set the set the tone for for us guys, you know, uh, growing up through this program. And so we've been able to kind of use their use their blueprint. Now that we're we're the seniors, it's uh, you know, guys about really fast. Even though this is year year six for me, um, but it's 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 been great. Just trying to trying to leave a, a new blueprint for for the young guys, and and hopefully kind of leave a leave a lasting legacy here this season. Sixth year. That's. I mean, you guys having the COVID year changes everything. So I yeah. did my I did my fifth year, and I remember my moment where I felt really old. My younger sister was on campus as a swimmer during summer school, <laughs> and one of my buddies was at a house party where she had maybe had a little bit too much and needed someone to come take her home. So me and my uh, my the starting center on our team had to go and pick up my sister, bring her back, <laughs> put her to bed, and we just looked at each other like, what What are we doing out here? Right now? <laughs> have, have you had a more like PG version of your like you know? Man, I'm definitely the old guy on the team moment right now. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I think mainly the older, I guess the oldest I feel is when I meet, um, you know, guys will come back here and uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like like Marcus Mariota or whatever. And I played with guys that like played on his team. <laughs> and so I'm like, and like I'll say guys' names like that I played with in like 2017 and people are like, who is that? Like, who are you talking about? And I'm like, gosh, these guys are like, because these these guys now are born in like 2004 and like all this stuff. And so it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous um, now that the the new class that we have. I'm like, dude, I'm like five five six years older than these guys. So it's kind of it's pretty much it's it's pretty funny. There's a huge uh, there's there's quite the generational gap, I guess, between us. 
Now you've been here. This is your third coaching staff, correct? Technically, your redshirt year was that Willie Taggart in 2017. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually I was recruited by Mark Helfrich in wow. uh, in that staff. So that was like the the staff that had been here for a little while, and then uh, Willie Taggart got here like going into signing day, pretty much of my like a month before signing day, my senior year, and then I was here with him for a year, and then Coach Cristobal. And now coach landing. So it's been a, a lot of different, a lot of different faces. Well, what's, what's that experience like for you then now being on a third different, or really in, in some senses, fourth different voice mm -hmm. that you've been hearing at that head coaching spot? Yeah. You know, I think it's been a, a nice change. Um, especially coach Lane just brings a different, I don't know, kind of a different juice about him. Um, you can just tell he's got a lot more energy and stuff and, you know, he's a lot younger. I mean, he's one of the younger head coaches in college football in general. And, you know, the now for our coaching staff, if you're one of the older ones, you're still, you know, younger than 50. So it's it's kind of funny, um, you know, the difference there. And our offense coordinator, I'm only like eight years younger than him. So it's like, <laughs> it's that, that, that's kind of funny to me. Um, no, but it, it's just different in the way that, you know, we're recruiting and recruiting has changed. And so the way that they, you know, interacting with recruits and, uh you know, all that stuff now uh, is definitely definitely a lot different, but I, I think that just all the coaches bring a, you know, tremendous amount of energy um, and they really let us be be ourselves and, um, you know, just have, have fun while playing football. Aside from energy for Coach Lanning, what would you say the biggest difference was when they got here in the offseason and you guys started, yeah. you know, the offseason program and going through spring ball? What kind of stuck out as one of the things they were doing differently? I just think how much he pushed – like our older guys to lead, I thought it was pretty special because, you know, he didn't, he didn't know any of us. So it was like, we kind of had to earn, you know, every year you gotta, you gotta earn your job and, and earn your, your role in the team. And I think the same thing goes with like your, you know, your leadership and just cause you're an older guy, you know, doesn't mean you're automatically going to be a leader. Um, I think leadership just kind of, you know, comes naturally to some people and, and doesn't to, to others, but he really made, you know, he really made it a point to push all of us to, you know, become leaders and, uh, a lot of the older guys that, you know, may necessarily not be see themselves as leaders, but, you know, other people want to hear their voices. So he really made sure that everybody felt like, uh, you know, they, they had a leader, I guess they had leadership qualities and, and they could lead the team. So I think that was a, a huge difference. And he wanted to create more of a, a culture that's, that's player led and, um, you know, kind of players checking other players and, and making sure everybody's doing the right thing. And a big part of that leadership usually comes from the quarterback spot you've seen and yeah. mentioned. A couple of really good guys you've had around there. We've all yeah. enjoyed watching Justin Herbert on Sundays yeah. and the job that he's done. You guys get Bo Nix comes over as a transfer. Yeah. Obviously, had played a ton of ball. You guys have been on the opposite side of the field from him yeah. not too long ago. So as far as him coming into that locker room as a new guy, but at a position where you're expected mm -hmm. to be a leader, what were kind of your first impressions of Bo and what's he meant to this team? No, he's been he's been huge. Um, when he came in, he was obviously recovering from an injury, um, so he wasn't able to really do a whole lot of the winter workouts. But he was able to participate in spring fully. Um, I think that was huge. And he kind of, you know, he met with me early. And as soon as uh, as soon as I knew he was transferring here, I you know texted uh, some other guys for his phone number, reached out to him, and was like, "Hey, welcome." And he's like, "Hey, I really want to, um, you know, I know you're center here. I, I really want to get to know you, and, and you know, let's let's get something to eat and kind of, you know, figure out where we're at as a team." And he just told me, "He's like, hey, I'm, I know, you know, it's going to be weird. I'm, I'm a new transfer guy. I played against you guys. Um, you know, it's it's a, kind of a strange situation. And the quarterback always, you know, going into it, 
we didn't know who the who the starter was going to be. Obviously, an open competition, and uh, you know, he's like, I really just want to. I understand that I haven't earned anything here, and I'm not asking anything to be handed to me. Um, but I just ask that you give me a chance. And so he's really, you know, taking ownership of that, and and it, no one no one was going to hand anything to him, and and he wanted to earn it all, and. I just think he's been a phenomenal leader and he's really helped me grow personally as, as a leader on this team. And, you know, he's, he's been really good for the locker room and um, just on the field, I have, I have all the confidence in the world in him. What's he do on the field that stands out to you as far as a player? I think the biggest thing is you look at last game where, you know, I've never had a, a true two minute drive to, to win the game and in my entire life. And we practice it. I probably practice it a thousand times, but I've never, never once done it in a game. And that's just kind of how football is, but he, uh, you know, he just kind of looked at me. He's like, it's just Thursday because Thursdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays, we do our two minute drill. And it's like, hey, it's just a Thursday. And we we literally did the same thing on on that Thursday. We went down and scored. So he's like, just another Thursday. And we went out there and we, you know, put together, put together a good drive and, and all that credit, you know, goes to him. Yeah, I mean, well, listen, there's there's not a lot that'll give a sideline juice and really calm him down in the situation than yeah. having a guy that's had that kind of experience. It, you yeah. mentioned seeing him across the sideline. I mean, yeah. is that, has that game come up in the locker room? Did that come up when he first got there? Like, how did you guys oh, approach yeah. that subject? Yeah, it was I kind of like first time we met him, you know, he he asked me and Ryan Walk, one of our one of our other linemen, he was like, Hey, let's let's go get something to eat and we're kind of all sitting there. I didn't really know, you know, what to talk about. I, I'd never met him before. And so we kind of started talking about that. I was like, why don't we just, let's just get this, get this out of the way. Get this, uh, but it just, it just shows just how funny and, and strange college football can be. And I'm, I'm really grateful. You know, he's, he's on our team, but it's just, it's weird. Three, three years ago we were playing him and then now he's, he's our quarterback. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny, but you know, he, he's done a great job and um, I'm, I'm really happy to have him on the team. I mean, and that's part of like the portal era of stuff. And you've yeah. now been around college football long enough to have really seen the way yeah. that this has changed it. We talk about it so much in the media and the outside. How mm -hmm. much do you guys feel the effects of the transfer portal, the new NIL stuff, as far as how it's yeah. affected, you know, guys coming and going on teams? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, it's really kind of changed the, the whole landscape of college football. Um, I think it's, you know, I think there's definitely some, some huge benefits to it. I, I think, I never shame anybody for transferring. Everybody transfers for their own reasons. I think it's good that, you know, they don't necessarily have to graduate because sometimes early on guys, you know, find somewhere and they're like, hey, this this isn't what I thought it'd be. This isn't what it was in recruiting. So, you know, they got to leave and, and do what's best for them and their family. And I, I have nothing nothing against that. So I, I don't like when people kind of say, hey, they're, you know, they're a quitter for for transferring because you really never know what people are, what people are truly going through um, at the place they're at. So I, I think it's, it's been cool to see it evolve. The NIL stuff is so new though, that I don't really, I don't really know a whole lot of, of how it works um, in recruiting or, or whatever it is. So I guess we'll, we'll have to see on, on how that kind of evolves. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all still changing so much. So I, yeah. I don't blame you. Lord, Lord knows you got enough on your plate already to worry <laughs> about than trying to figure out how it's going. Cause I mean, with you now, especially being an older guy, all this stuff about conference realignment, the differences yeah. in recruiting, it's like, you're not going to have to deal with this. All right, I'm not going to have to deal with this. I don't really care a whole lot. <laughs> that's, that's the younger guy's problem. Yeah, keep the main thing the main thing. And, yeah, and exactly. Listen, and you guys have done that as a team now, really, uh -huh. you know, still highly ranked at this point. Everyone's, I think, going to still point to what happened to open the season. For yeah. you guys, take me through what the conversation was like after that Georgia game. Obviously, it didn't go the way that you guys wanted. That's a really great football team. But yeah. the way you guys have responded – where did that come from? What was the conversation after that game? 
I think we just kind of talked about it, like, hey, you know, people are going to write us off. Um, your backs, our backs are going to be against the wall. We just can't listen to outside noise because people are going to kind of bury you. And that's that's just how football football works, especially with social media. So, you know, I try to encourage as many guys as I could, you know, stay off social media. Um, don't go on it if 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 possible. And just kind of focus in on what's really important. And that's just, you know, the next game, um, you know, obviously – that was a really good, a really good Georgia team. And, you know, we didn't play our best, but, you know, they, they, they beat us fair and square so that we couldn't, you couldn't just make excuses. We had to go back, watch the film and be like, Hey, you know, we, we have to do this better. This is, this has got to get done. And then, you know, responded with a win against Eastern Washington. And, you know, that was, that was great, but, you know, I knew we'd have a, a true test against, you know, BYU and, uh, that game, you know, went, went really well for us. I think we were locked in and then obviously Washington state, um, you know, kind of fell behind there for a little bit. Um, but the cool part about that game was, is nobody ever gave up on the sideline. Nobody was ever pointing fingers. It was, hey, next play. Hey, what's the next play? Like, we, we got to get this done. And then it, it you kind of focused on that. And then at the end of the game, it was like, hey, we got a chance to win right here. So let's just go execute like we we have been. So I think, uh, and, you know, we, we looked at those games critically too. You know, when you, you go out to the game, you can't, uh, you can't avoid any of the any of the mistakes you make in a in a win either. So we've been super critical of ourselves first, and I think that's really helped us helped us grow as a team and really you know put forth the effort in, in practice and you know fix the things that we have made mistakes on. Well, that that internal standard standard is always mm-hmm. the most interesting to me because for your guys group up front right now, you're the only mm-hmm. offensive line in college football that hasn't given up a sack. It's in mm-hmm. your guys' media guide, so I don't feel like I'm doing the announcer jinx yeah. right now or anything. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you you guys are aware of all this stuff, but mm-hmm. I also know that internally in an offensive line room, all the PFF grades in the world and fun headlines aren't going to escape the eye in the sky. So yeah. for you guys, what's the conversation like in your room about how you've played so far and what you guys are trying to get done? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, I like what you said there, like the, the PFL, all that stuff, uh, it's, you know, it's whatever, but you know, the, the camera back there, it's like you said, it doesn't, the eye in the sky doesn't lie. So, you know, ours is a lot technique driven, you know, you may have beat, beat somebody on a rep, but it's like, Hey, it, it could have been that much better. You know, if your first step got in the ground faster, you know, if you strike low to high or whatever on, on this rep, um, and just, I think a lot of it last week was, you know, how can we pass off games better? Cause they, you know, Washington state ran a lot of games up front. That's, that's what they've been doing. That's their, their personality of their defense. Um, and it's a really challenging defense to go against. They weren't, you know, a stagnant front. They, they really like to, to move their guys all over the place. So I think we did a pretty good job. And I think most of it is just keep everything process oriented. Um, you know, how you do it throughout the week. So we do countless, you know, player led blitz, blitz pickup meetings. I call it running backs, quarterbacks, tight ends, whoever's going to be in the protection that week. I make sure we have at least three meetings where we go through every single blitz that they're going to bring. And we go through it on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then usually on Friday before meeting. So that's been a huge thing that I've really taken a lot of pride in being like, Hey, you know, getting with Bo and being like, Hey, we, we got to call this meeting. Um, you know, they may not, they may not even run this blitz once, but I'd love to be ready for it because it'd look really cool if we picked it up and it'd make me, it'd make me really happy if we picked it up. So that's kind of the, the weird offensive line nerd part of part of me that that loves being able to pick up blitzes and stuff. But, you know, I think that stuff's really, really important. I know you, you played offensive line, so you know how, how rewarding that is, to, you know, pick up, pick up a, a confusing pressure and have everybody from O-line to quarterback to running back all be on the same page. It's really, really rewarding. 
And it's such a great reminder, man, that like so many people look at that stat and they talk about the offensive line and the job you guys have done, but it doesn't work if the quarterback doesn't go, hey, this is where we're at on this, the tight ends or the running backs who are involved in all this. It's such a community effort there. And I think you did a really good job of of illustrating that. And for you guys up front, you do a lot. This offense is really Mm -hmm. variable. You got good tight ends. Kenny Dillingham, your offensive coordinator, makes it really variable, but for you, what's your favorite stuff to run? Like every offensive lineman, I think, has a couple of run plays that they really love getting after and getting into. Yeah. When you're at your best, what run plays are you running out there? I think I love, uh, you know, duo and inside zone. Um, I think that was just historic. Like since I've been playing football, since I've been introduced to those plays, those have always, no matter what position I'm playing on the offensive line, those have always been my favorite my favorite plays. I think when I'm at, when I played guard, I think counter was probably the best because you just get a, kind of run full speed and hit, hit the defensive end. So that's, <laughs> that's always pretty fun, um, especially if they don't read its counter right away, then it, then it makes it really fun. Um, but, you know, Coach Dillingham's done a great job of, you know, running a lot of different things. And Washington State, it was, it was you know, kind of funny. We, he just like, okay, we're going to kind of air the ball out this second half and, you know, ended up hitting some big shot plays uh, down the field. So it was, it was really, you know, we, we had a lot of different um, weapons on offense. For the O-line, part of what ends up, I think, making each group special is all that time you spend together outside of just practice, outside of meetings, which leads to the most important time you spend together, which is usually we always did Thursday night dinners together as a unit here. Do you guys have anything set up like that during the week? What's your guys' schedule as far as big eats for the big guys? Yeah, so we I got with Bo because normally we do like just an O-line dinner. I was like, hey. I was like, last year our quarterback, you know, took us out Monday night and he got he got the an NIL deal with like a barbecue spot and they you know, had a whole back room uh, reserved for us. And so uh, I was like, hey, can we, can we get something like that going? He's like, okay, I'll see what I can do. And then he just texted us last night like, hey, I got to deal with this restaurant, so we're gonna we're gonna head there on Thursday at, at around five thirty. So that's a that's a big time for us. All right, there we listen. Smart man, get the court. Yeah. The court. Listen, we all saw Bo going back to Auburn. He got plenty of NIL, NIL yeah. people beating down his door here. It's time exactly. to take care of the big guys on that front. So, yeah. all right, that's good. That's good to hear. That's good to yeah. hear. He's taking care of you guys. Uh, Alex, big picture on this. Mm-hmm. The Pac-12 is a conference. Mm-hmm. Pac-12 after dark, all that stuff. That's fun, but perception-wise, we know this is a conference that's always been it seems like nationally fighting for its place in college football fighting for all that is that something that you guys take personally that pride in continuing to go and say hey we're one of the best programs and best conferences in college football yeah I think that's that's been huge and I think especially with the the offensive line um you know when when coach Clem got here he really told us like hey this is what people think of you and this is just being honest like what they what they think of Pac-12 and West Coast football so we, we really got to um, you know, change the way we do things and change the way people think. So we, we're just trying to go out every single week and, you know, play the best we can. But I, I think that is, uh, you know, the, the end goal is to kind of change the perception of, of the Pac-12 and, and West Coast football in general. It's awesome, man. I'm excited to get out and cover your guys' game this weekend, yeah. man. I know, listen, Stanford, while the record might not be great this year, you guys know that is always going to be a tough always out tough here. Game. There have been some really you know, tough battles with that yeah. team. So what do, you, what do you see when you look and scout Stanford as far as what they give you guys defensively and why they've traditionally been such a tough team to go up against? Yeah, I think they always take a lot of pride in their offensive line and defensive line, and you can see that. Um, I know their record doesn't show it, but you know their their front seven is really talented. Um, they do you know a lot of a lot of unique things. Um, 
And they just they they have some you know big dudes up front at the defensive tackle position. Um, they got some ends that you know can really really play some football. Linebackers, you know, really instinctual. Uh, they play downhill. They play physical. And that's just what Stanford's. You know, that's what they've they've been for. Um, you know, since I've been watching football. So they're they're going to be a really talented team up front. Um, it'll be a really great challenge for us. All right, last one for me here because. Yeah. I always know as an offensive lineman, the bane of our existence as a group was when we were wearing the road white uniforms. There was no <laughs> way for any of us to look skinny in the road yeah. white. You guys got more uniforms than God and more colors than I can keep track of here. <laughs> What's the O-line consensus on those uniforms here? Because I know it's fun for the small guys. It can be a little bit hit or miss sometimes for us. Yeah, usually I don't I don't pay attention, but I think the best I've looked in a uniform, personally speaking, is the uh, I like the all black uniforms or the the nightmare green. I think those are the all white doesn't do me any justice. So I think the the darker the uniform, the better. Brother, you are not alone. There is not an offensive <laughs> lineman in the history of this sport. I played with Zach Martin, and he still looked like the same bag. You know what the rest of us <laughs> did when we were wearing those whites. So <laughs> it is uh, it comes with the territory, man. But. Yeah. Uh, Whatever's on, man. You guys have been crushing it. It's been fun to watch. I'm looking forward to getting out there this weekend and seeing it. Thanks so much, man. Good luck the rest of the season. It'll be fun to yeah, watch I really, you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Sound the trumpets. It's horse racing time. So saddle up for the action with DK Horse, an official DraftKings affiliate. Right now, new customers who download the DK Horse app can get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250. Just deposit $25 or more and complete the playthrough requirement. Wager on your favorite horses, then watch the races live right in the app. Download the DK Horse app now. New customers get a 100% deposit bonus up to $250 when they opt in with code GOLIC. Only on the DK Horse app. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER, 18+, plus in certain states, to open or access an account and resident of a state where DK Horse is available. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. One per new customer. Match calculated on first deposit up to a maximum of $250. Deposit requires two-time playthrough of settled wager within 168 hours. Bonus released in $25 increments. Deposit and eligibility restrictions apply. See terms at dkhorse.com. All right, Brandon, we'll uh, take a quick look at a couple of the games coming up this weekend here. Um, biggest one of the weekend, I would say, by far has to be Buffalo and Baltimore matchup of Woo. two of the best offenses of, in the league. Statistically, one and two in points per drive on offense with Buffalo sitting at number one in the league in that standpoint now. And Brandon, I, I think this is another game that's going to be decided largely by who's available and who's on the field uh, for Buffalo. True. I think the two most important players in the injury report for them are going to be Jordan Poyer, one of their safeties. Uh, they've already lost Micah Hyde for the season. But Jordan Most Poyer coming back against this Baltimore passing attack that makes use so much of the middle of the field with Mark Andrews and even what we started to see with you know Duvernay and some of the big passing plays over the middle here. And then... On the other side, Mitch Morris, their center, uh, who also dealt with an injury in the last game here. Up the middle of that offense has been so important for them, that position on the offensive line that, you know, has not gone out there and certainly worn on anyone running-wise, but in pass protection and the things they ask of you in front of Josh Allen, I think he's a super important player for that group. So uh, I think a lot of it's going to be decided by that. Uh, Ronnie Stanley is another injury on the Baltimore side. Yeah, man. Ronnie had, was a full participant in practice for the for back-to-back -back days for the first time in a long time. 
uh, and says, according to reports that we saw yesterday, that he thinks he is really close to a return. Uh, so it's back-to-back full practices for the first time this season. He has missed 31 of the Ravens' past 32 games, including playoffs, because of an ankle injury that he suffered back a couple of years ago. So, Ronnie, and I've yeah. seen practice footage of him going out there doing individual drills. If he comes back, you know, even whatever form that he's in at this point, because he was one of the best tackles in the NFL in 2019 when he was healthy, even if that's not the case anymore... He's better than Daniel Falele, who is at this, this point been Oof. the left tackle in there, their young draft pick out of uh, Minnesota, who's a mountain of a man and may wear, very well be a good player, but he was about right. the third string left tackle on this depth chart to start the season. I like it. it. It's That's a huge swing for this game because Von Miller on the other side has been every bit of what they paid him to be. This is one of the most potent pass rushes in the NFL all across the board on that front four. And... If Ronnie is not out there, and if Ronnie is is well below what we've expected, that's still advantage Buffalo. I think they win this game, Brandon. I think they're three-point favorites, according to DraftKings Sportsbook, as of right now as we're recording this podcast. Um, I look at this game, if you're looking for a play, and we'll get to the pick six later on, I'd like the over in this game. I think both teams are going to be able to continue to score. Lamar Jackson's been able to go really well. The Buffalo secondary just still so beat up. And on both yeah. sides of the ball, I think we've seen the bus in the Ravens secondary against Miami that allowed them to come back, having to go and get a stress test against a really good Buffalo passing offense. No, that's fair. I, I was thinking about the offense and not thinking about the Swiss cheese defense for both sides of the ball. So I think that's safe. They're going to have to score to to win this game. But Baltimore, I, 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 I'm with you, Mike. I think they're going to lose this game just because – it's weird to say, but that three-point dog at home in a one o'clock window early in the season—that's just an easy loss. I've seen them lose to the, uh, a bad Browns team, and this is a good Bills team. Yeah, I, I think too. One of the good get-right moments for the Bills in this is potentially in the red zone. Both of these red zone defenses are not statistically very good right now, um, and for Buffalo, that was their biggest problem against Miami was a failure to convert down in the red zone. Miami's defense deserves a lot of credit for the way that they forced the issue on that Buffalo offense. But I think yeah. if you are Buffalo and you're looking for an opportunity there to get right, uh, Baltimore's defense could provide that for you. So. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, I'm sorry. I, I didn't have my fan hat on. Y'all crazy. You think Buffalo Bills going to come into Baltimore and, and get away with that game? Yeah, I, I want to bet on an alternative spread, and it's uh, uh, Baltimore minus seven. I appreciate it. The Stugats is strong in you. That's a strong hedge on both sides of this one. You've learned very well in the school of broadcasting coming out of this program and infecting us with that virus as often as he has here. So, um the other uh, big game on the weekend, Brandon, uh, I think would be Kansas City at Tampa Bay, the Sunday night game, which at this yeah. point now will remain in Tampa Bay. It sounds like they were able to dodge the worst of what Hurricane Ian had to offer, and so the league won't be relocating okay. that game. We mentioned yesterday there was potential that could go up into uh, Minneapolis and be at the stadium there. So for this game, Brandon, it's really interesting, and I had to look at this several times on DraftKings, Kansas City is plus one in this game. They are favored in this game, or they sorry, they are the underdog in this game. Which normally, being on the road against a team in Tampa who's been as involved in the postseasons as they have been for quite some time, 
wouldn't be overly surprising, but in this case, I was pretty stunned by that. So just to give you an idea, this game when it, the when the line opened, when the line first opened, Kansas City was a one point favorite in this game. Um, they were as big as a, as much as a three point favorite in the lead up before this drop to Kansas City getting points in this game. So that's wow. kind of been the roller coaster of this week. I had wondered how much of that had to do with the potential weather impact of this game, if it limits the passing offense of Kansas City, which had already been one that kind of largely existed without big plays, if people were overthinking that Colts loss, because I think there's a lot of that to go around, um, because most of that was tied to special teams, Sky Moore and all those drops on punt returns. It was just, it seemed like, you know, in hockey, they'd call it puck luck. Um if you're looking for hope, yeah. Chiefs-wise, uh, statistically, this is the top scoring defense right now in the NFL, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They've been lights out on that side of the ball. The Chiefs or the Bucks offense is going to get back Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Julio Jones, and some of the rest of that group seem to be trending in the right direction. There, you know, there were a lot of you know people watching the practice report on those guys, but they're at the very least going to have Mike Evans back. But Brandon, in the last six matchups uh, that Patrick Mahomes has had against the top scoring defense in the NFL, the Chiefs are five and one and average twenty nine point three points per game in those contests. So they've traditionally responded well, albeit this is now an offense that lacks a very decidedly important tool in its bag in Tyree Kill. Yeah, but the line is still set uh, when it comes to passing yards for Patrick Mahomes is 266 yards and 66 and a half yards. That still feels just I, – I would just hammer the over there. Like I just – even if Patrick Mahomes doesn't win this game, he's going to have to score to compete against Brady as he always does. So I, I just don't, I don't understand why, why the Chiefs are getting so much hate. Are, are looking so unfavorable against this Bucks team. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd imagine some of it's respect for the Bucks defense. Some of it's going to be conditioned. Some of it's the fact that the Bucks are getting some help back on offense because the team we saw last week had nobody out at wide receiver. I right. mean, you had guys in Cole Beasley that had been there for like four days just being trotted yeah. out in the middle of that offense. So I can understand the cavalry has somewhat come back. And Donovan Smith's injury status is probably the most important thing to keep an eye on for Bucks fans heading into that game. Their left tackle is that has become one of those positions where they've seen now, you know, their backup left tackle has gone on IR for the year. Wells, all those things, but... On the other side, it is interesting for as great as the Buccaneers' defense has been. They're 27th in the NFL as far as quarterback pressure percentage, so not getting home Damn. a lot. If you give Patrick Mahomes enough time back there, I think he finds right. a way to get it done. I like the Chiefs winning this game. I think if they're getting points, they're still one of the best teams in the NFL. I know it doesn't look the same, and I know that Colts loss might scare a couple some people, but I just don't think at this point... Tampa Bay too limited up front on offense too much of that's going to take some time to rework and I think that imbalance ends up costing them I think Kansas City's defense can make enough plays in that game and I think they can get a road win even if it's a sloppy one there and uh the NBA playoffs are heating up and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the NBA 
With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code GOJO. That's code GOJO for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Brandon, to that end, those are a couple of the picks that will find their way into the thick six for this week. We forget if it's the thick six, the pick six, or the thick pick six. Either way, they are six bets that I give out going into every weekend here. We are slowly... Working our way up here. We were 2-4 and four in week one. Week two was the bottom out. 0-5-1. Followed by 2-3-1 and one in week three. And then 3-3 three and three last week with also an added bonus because we bet the Lions in the Lions bet of the week. And so 7-15-2 on the year in the thick pick six picks. So we're trending in the right direction. Uh, NFL-wise, mentioned two of them already. I like Buffalo and Baltimore over 51 in that game. I think there's going to be a lot of points to be had out on the field. Two of those really potent offenses. Um, I like the Chiefs plus one against Tampa Bay. And again, I keep looking on DraftKings to make sure that that is real and the Chiefs are receiving points. And it is. And so I will take that opportunity because I think tales of their demise are very overstated coming off that Colts game. And then... Gonna just throw the Lions right in this time. The Lions playing against Seattle. DeAndre Swift looks like he might not be going. Amon Ross St. Brown dinged up, who's been one of the best wide receivers in the NFL so far this season for them. So I think all that turns this one into kind of an ugly game. I like the Lions in Seattle under 48 in this game. So that'll be the NFL side of things there. We're gonna keep riding with the Lions on that one. I think those I think they're still going to get a win, but feel a lot better about this being a low-output game since Seattle after that first game against Denver has kind of come back down to earth. Um, College-wise, Brandon, we're going to go Michigan minus 10.5 versus Iowa. Uh, All I've seen with Iowa football this year is punts. I think that Michigan going toe-to-toe with a Maryland team, that's the polar opposite, right? Defense is getting there, but offensively, Maryland... Really potent wide receiver room. Talia Tungavailoa playing behind a much better offensive line. Gave Michigan a bit of a scare there. I think they're back on track, and I think Iowa's so imbalanced offensively to defensively. Even though they are a top 10 defense in college football, I like Michigan covering that number there. Uh, I'm going to take Kentucky plus 7 against Ole Miss. Ole Miss hadn't really played anybody yet so far this season. Kentucky... Good win over Florida. I think there's still part of me that wonders top end if Kentucky is as good as their top 10 rating right now. But against this old Miss team, I think their defense is enough to slow down oh, Jackson yeah. Dart. And that offense, even though that offense has been phenomenal, and shout out to Charlie Weiss Jr., the offensive coordinator now at Ole Miss, who's done a phenomenal job there. So again, Ole Miss can still win that game if Coach Weiss is listening right now. Kentucky, I just think, can keep this thing close enough. Will Levis has been incredible on the other side. They also get Chris Rodriguez back. They're all everything running back from last year who had missed the first four games of this season. And then Brandon, finish it off. We'll go to the Pac-12 where I've spent a lot of time this year. 
Uh, Washington Man. minus two and a half against UCLA. I like Washington covering the spread there. I think UCLA is going to struggle on the back end. Washington statistically, I think one of the best, if not the best, passing attack in college football right now. Michael Penix Jr. has been sensational. They got a really good wide receiver room in there that I think is going to start to get talked about more and more. I know UCLA is one of those undefeated teams right now hanging around, but I think Washington is a legit Pac-12 contender, so I like them covering the number at minus 2.5. So pick thick six for the week, Brandon. Let's hope this continues our rise back into prominence. Now you said thick pick six. Say it again. The thick pick, or the thick pick six, because I don't know which one it is, and so I'm just combining them both because I forgot how I said it the first time. Well, what about six thick picks? Ooh, Brandon, <laughs> I just got chills. <laughs> six thick picks. I mean, you're a wizard, Harry. The STPs, baby. <laughs> the STPs. So let it be written. So let it be done. Brandon, you fixed it. You fixed my brain. Oh, my gosh. I got an ESPN article playing in my ear right now while you were giving me praise. I apologize, but it's know, all right. I need to hear it. It's all right, Brandon. You know what? Instead of praise, I can give you something even better than that. I can give you a reminder that? that our friends at Knockaround Sunglasses have been an outstanding supporter of this podcast. They are some of my favorite people. I just got a new set of sunglasses from them in honor of us getting ready to start on Major League Baseball's postseason. Very excited. You can check out those and many more of Knockaround's fine sunglasses at knockaround.com. They are polarized sunglasses, and as you've heard us say, they only cost about $30 a pair. 15 different frames, a ton of different colors, so you can get a little bit of everything or a lot of one thing. Whatever you want. You've got all those options. You've got over a billion possible combinations in the Knockaround Custom Shop that can go to work for you. You can go out and take them on a run. You can take them out for a night on the town. You can wear your sunglasses inside with these. And no one will look at you like you're a weirdo. They'll just say, man, I wish I looked as cool as the guy wearing those. Who makes them? Oh, it's Knockaround? Where can I go? Knockaround.com? Wow, <laughs> incredible. I had no idea. Knockaround sunglasses are high-quality, polarized sunglasses at a truly affordable price. And if you are one of those random people seeing someone wearing the knockarounds in public, you can go to knockaround.com, check out their huge range of shades, and use promo code GOJO. That'll get you 20% off at checkout. So again, knockaround.com, $30 sunglasses, 20% off using promo code GOJO. We appreciate you supporting the people that support us. Knockarounds, they're day ones. They're in the inner circle. We love them to death, and we appreciate hey. them coming out here and going to bat for us on this podcast, Brandon. Get about get about six dollars off. That's what that that's what that calculates to. See, Brandon out here out here reworking names of su shows subjects that I have messed up. Out here doing math. You want dynamic? Brandon is a chameleon, and now I get to put him to that test even further because, Brandon, I have to ask you, do you know what time it is? On a Friday, you're damn skippy. I don't know what time it is, Mark. Here I am, so alone, and there's nothing in this world I can do. Until this, that, and the third Miss you, want you, need you so Until this, that, and the third Yeah There's a feeling inside I want you to know You are the one and I can't 
let you go Brandon, that was beautiful. Oh, thank you, Mike. Little BB Mac on a Friday. I know you bought Boy Band Friday or Friday Boy Bands, whatever the thing is. I don't know what the name is, but I thought about you. STPs. (laughs) (laughs) If you like STPs, Boy Band Fridays, and Brandon effortlessly, I think that's the best this, that, and the third has fit into the lyrics of any song that you have done so far. Stop, Mike. You you get really creative on how you compliment uh, every week and every day, and that that's the, that's the most. I almost believed you. Well, if you feel like you can muster up a creative comment, download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> Leave us a five star rating and a review, and go ahead and let Brandon know what your creative praise for him off this, that, and the third looks like, and. Brandon, from praise and laughter to the exact opposite of that, the continued downfall of Brett Favre is one. I know this has been the go-to calling card for a lot of people who have looked out, and as things have happened with Ime Yudoka and plenty of other figures, people have said, why is this getting so much coverage compared to what Brett Favre is doing? And I think there are a lot of legitimate reasons why that is. Brett Favre is not an active player. There's not much else to be said besides this is bad and the legal system should go ahead and make itself felt on this. But there is new information to report about what Brett Favre has done and it continues to get worse if that was even possible. Brett Favre, who is already entangled in a large-scale case of welfare fraud in the state of Mississippi, where Brett Favre and others have been taking away money that was earmarked to go and help the the most the most desperate in need portion of the population in one of the poorest states in the US. In Brett Favre's case, it was money that was funneled towards the construction of a volleyball facility at Southern Mississippi, Brett Favre's alma mater, and where his daughter played collegiate volleyball. Brett Favre now is under fire because, as first reported by The Athletic, from 2018 to 2020, Brett Favre's charitable foundation, Favre for Hope, Hope, which has the stated mission to support disadvantaged children and cancer patients, donated $130,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi Athletic Foundation during the same years that Favre was working to finance a new volleyball center at the school. Um, Favre, who has also received $1.1 million for speeches that he did not make, according to the state auditor report and court documents, was instrumental in moving more than $5 million in welfare towards the building of that facility. During this time, when it comes to Favre's charity, though, He had apparently, according to tax records, shown that Favre for Hope gave Southern Miss Athletic Foundation $60,000 in 2018 when no other charity received more than $10,000 from the organization. The next year, it gave $46,817, the next highest gift, which went to Special Olympics of Mississippi, only received $11,000. And in 2020, he sent the USM Athletic Foundation $26,175. No other organization received more than $10,000. Tax records also show when Favre's daughter was a volleyball player at Oak Grove High in Hattiesburg, Favre for Hope Foundation donated $60,000 to that school's booster club, the largest grant made by Favre for Hope that year. That subsequently granted $60,000 to the high school for the stated purpose of, quote, assist to build athletic facility. So the tax documents can't disclose, Brandon, if there were any 
potential conditions that Far For Hope placed on the grants given to the US, uh, USM Athletic Foundations. But experts around this and the people that uh, work at Charity Watch, like Lori St- uh, Styron, said that you can't say you're raising money for one purpose and then spend it on something totally different. Charities have an ethical obligation, and in some cases a legal obligation, to fulfill the intentions of its donors in the way that funds are spent. Brandon... I don't know where Brett Favre sits legally in this process because the case of fraud that he's a part of is $77 million of fraud that exists at the government level in the state of Mississippi. It is very serious things for which Brett Favre was not specifically being tried for at the time. But if not, I mean, if nothing else, Brandon, there is nothing left in the way of goodwill that can be afforded towards this man. Between defrauding welfare in the state of Mississippi, that again, one of the poorest, most disadvantaged populations in the U.S., and now taking charitable money that was supposed to go to people with special needs and cancer patients and funneling it towards your school's athletic fund, I don't know if there's an excuse in the world that you can find or some sort of creative legal mumbo-jumbo that would erase just the way that looks and sounds on the surface. Because it would require some level of deceit that we have already seen from Brett Favre, who in text messages, in the court documents, was asking the people involved in this, there's no way that the media is going to be able to find out where this money came from, right? The words and texts of a guilty man who knew what he was doing was wrong seems to once again be in a position where he was doing something that I'm sure he hoped and believed would never see the light of day the way that it is now. It's despicable. It is des- it is despicable, cowardly behavior from a man that was for so long lionized. And this is, I don't know if it's just, you know, me getting older and noticing more of these things or if it's because the sports figures that were central in my life as a kid are now growing older and through time and an increased access and information we see more and more than ever. But I I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but this is yet another one of the former sports. The people that grew up that were icons in this sport, in the biggest sport in North America, being torn down to the studs and being shown for the people that they really are. And this is as illuminating a process as we've seen for an athlete who has been shown to be involved in some truly, again, just cowardly, despicable behavior. Yes, and uh, proving himself to be an immoral man. In this culture that we burn jerseys of people that switch teams, I think each individual person who was in love with Brett Favre was forced to take their jersey off at some point in time. At this point in time, if anyone is still holding on to that that jersey, because I I saw a lot of people, he was galvanized for his Hall of Fame speech uh, for whatever reason. A lot of people were uh, moved by that in in a real way and was reminded about how special Brett Favre made them feel when they were watching him play football. I, I was, okay. Um, but now, I feel like now, this should be all the evidence, all the receipts that you need to uh, remove the art from the artist a little bit and, and, and finally condemn. You can condemn them both because it's, it's, the, it's the man under the helmet. Yep, and the more and more we have found out about the man under the helmet, the less and less there has been to go out and even attempt to defend. So that is the latest with Brett Favre. I will be curious now to see what the next step of this looks like as more of this starts to involve Brett Favre and as more of these headlines start to come out. I don't know if there's going to be something the legal system can do. That's where the the limits of my knowledge extend to. 
But at the very least, this isn't a person we need out front being celebrated for any reason anymore. Um, so Brandon, let's take a breath and instead celebrate someone who does deserve celebration and who does have something exciting to celebrate in their life here. Joel Embiid is now a U.S. citizen. Joel Embiid, who was born in Cameroon, said Thursday he was sworn in as a citizen two weeks ago in Philly. Um, he said that his family, he has his uh, Brazilian girlfriend, Anne DePaul, and a two-year-old son played a big role in this. He said, quote, I've been here for a long time. My son is American. I felt like I'm living here, and it's a blessing to be an American. So I said, why not? And while this is not to just, you know, beat the drum for nationalism or anything like that, because we know there's plenty of things wrong here on the home front. If this is a decision that Joel Embiid and his family were genuinely excited about and he wants to make sure that, you know, growing up here, his son can look up and feel like, hey, I am just as much of an American citizen as everyone else here and they can raise their family that way, then good for Joel Embiid. As long as they're happy, then I am happy as Joel Embiid is, you know, been very consistently great over the last couple seasons, but before that was one of my favorite trolls in the NBA and someone who's generally been a bright spot. Definitely been a bright spot. Love seeing him do one-on-ones with Jason Tatum in the offseason. Keep those coming. Is it um, – am I doing a, a bad faith thing by trying to uh, give a Joel Embiid accent with this quote? Um. Yeah, I probably wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> Especially because – Every time you try and impersonate someone, Brandon, it ends up just giving that person a slight lisp. I, I've. <laughs> you don't have to okay. do it. All right. I'm telling I'm you, you don't have to do it. You can cut. Okay, cut, cut me off. Cut me off. Cut me off. <laughs> there we go. I've been here. <laughs> I've been here a long time. Oh no! I'm just I'm just gonna stop you. I'm gonna stop you before it's too late right now, Brandon. I am fine with you butchering British accents here, but what we're not gonna do on this podcast is have you go anywhere near Joel Embiid, who is enjoying this time, True. who is coming back this season with James Harden, and who is hopeful this team will finally be able to do enough while he is healthy enough to go and see out the right. full extent of his powers here. Maybe even an MVP no. along the way. Yes, and I, I hope we see him win a championship soon. Because that would be fun. And sure, James, you can win one too. Um, Harden, we're talking about. But yes, thank you for that, Mike. I, I didn't realize that because I'm so poor at doing accents, if I was to try to uh, give that quote, it would be a version of black on black crime. So I appreciate you for being a, a, a white ally in, in that moment. We're just being teammates trying to have each other's back, Brandon. That's all any of us can try and do in this crazy world here. But. Let's get to my favorite headline of the last 24 to 48 hours, Brandon, as the third is Lizzo. Lizzo, who in addition to being just a, a musical icon and someone who has in so many ways, I think, forced people to, you know, expand their horizons and just in general creates bops. Lizzo's awesome. And she's a ton of fun. She's also a very talented flautist. She's an incredible flute player. We've seen that as a part of her shows and concerts over the years. And she got to add a pretty cool line item to her resume here. Lizzo was able to play the crystal flute gifted to President James Madison in 1813 during a concert on Tuesday in D.C. The Library of Cons Congress had hit Lizzo up 
the Library of Congress where this flute and a bunch of other really cool older instruments have been stored agreed to let Lizzo play it at her show. They brought her into the Library of Congress. They gave her the opportunity to go and play and it's beautiful. It is a crystal flute. It is 200 years old and Lizzo went and rocked the hell out of that thing and it was a ton of fun to watch. Her joy was really genuine because she is someone that loves playing this instrument and has a lot of reverence for it and Brandon, wouldn't you know right on time, a bunch of weird right-wing talking heads decided to come out with a little bit of that racism and have something weird to say or weird criticisms of her coming in and twerking in the Library of Congress and playing the flute and doing general fun Lizzo things. I I don't want to get too caught up in addressing the people who are, air quotes, mad about this because I think that's a lot of bad faith stuff that's used to kind of signal to a base in a way that we're pretty used to seeing here as of late in the world. I just want to go about the fact that Lizzo got to walk into the Library of Congress and play a 200-year-old instrument. And every person I've talked to, and shout out to Alex McDaniel, phenomenal writer, phenomenal editor, phenomenal person, also a former member of the band at Ole Miss who plays the flute, Alex McDaniel was the one who I first commented on this as my flute source, so to speak, here. Um, And she works at For the Win USA Today now. I should update and actually give her present bio, but... Uh, I asked her about this. I was like, is there anything to actually be mad about here? And she said, absolutely not. Musical instruments are not artifacts that are put in a museum. The reason it is held where it is is because musical instruments are meant to be played. That is, And from everything I have gleaned from musical instrument Twitter, the best way to preserve items like this is to use them, is to play them. And so Lizzo going out here and helping the cause and being a baller at the same time. And I know this isn't the same crystal, Mike, but she's a big stones and crystals person. So for her to play a 200-old crystal flute, like I just, it almost feels like uh, as as important as Truth Hurts was for her. Like it was like it was like a, a combination of her career. I'm sure this was a moment like that for her as well. It's gonna be odd because it's so far out of the realm of what you normally get to do, right? We all who work in sports right. have things that are a normal part of our day-to-day operations. The people we get to see, athletes we get to meet, sporting events that we're able to go to. And so when something stops like this, Lizzo's played a ton of really cool venues, I'm sure. Lizzo's probably played a lot of really nice, expensive instruments. But getting to play something that's 200 years old that's been chilling in the Library of Congress is pretty wild. So I'm glad she got to have that experience. It's, it's like when uh, uber celebrities just randomly get the Presidential Medal of Honor. Like, seeing Ellen DeGeneres get the medal plated on her, she's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. It's like, this is so crazy. She's like, yeah, we think it's crazy too, but good for you. It's, it's once again just a reminder that celebrate the joy part of this because the rest of this is only happening because Lizzo is a black woman. And if it were anyone yes. else that had been put into this situation... And anyone else who would come in and play this as, again, I will quote my friend Alex McDaniel who said, Love to see people lose their shit over things they never knew existed and wouldn't have cared about if they had. If the principal flutist of the New York Philharmonic played it, there wouldn't be anything close to this reaction and we all know it. Amen. Amen. And also, I feel like if James Madison didn't make the... Crossover to D1, this wouldn't be a a topic of discussion either. I know. They really, like, don't need to, like, we don't need 
j- weird James Madison stands interview interfering with what's going on with football James Madison right now who is objectively balling as they this should yeah. be a cause for celebration you have got that yes. and then this James Madison flute getting the Lizzo treatment which by the way I've seen many people crying out for more instruments give her more instruments here find the instruments that will make that certain section of the population even more upset and give Lizzo those instruments and let her cook forget Russ let let Lizzo cook hey let's let's get Robert A. Lee's harmonica there we go. Bust it all out at this point and give it to Lizzo again. We can write hundreds of years of wrongs or at least attempt to by giving instruments to Lizzo of people that had incredibly problematic past during the time in history where those things were much more common. We want to make sure that Lizzo's got wrong the opportunity side. to go and stunt on people who are on the wrong side of history. Give Lizzo more instruments. Let Lizzo cook, LLC. Go ahead and make it happen here as long as we're doing abbreviations <laughs> for the day. Lizzo be eating. If you enjoyed Lizzo out here getting to cook, and if you enjoyed whatever we attempted to do on this podcast that may or may not be considered cooking at any point in time, make sure you download, subscribe, rate, and review Gojo wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. Check out our YouTube page, DraftKings YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. And check out the Gojo with Michael of Junior playlist while you're there. And you know, hit the thumbs up button a little bit. Check it out here. Tried our best. We're going to keep trying to do our best as always. Everyone have a great weekend. We'll talk to you on Monday. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.